0: All right, I'm really excited about today's message. Um, not so much because it's something new, but because I know myself, I need this message. So, you know, there's this kind of sermon that when I prepare the sermon, I know that I need desperately need to message myself. And that's why I think it's going to be good, because it's, it's, I desperately need this message. And I think if I need this message, I believe that most of you in this place will need this message as well, Okay. Acts chapter 4, let's read together from verse 23 to verse 31. One, two, three. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentile rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had the predestined to take place. And now, Lord... we realize the weight of this verse that we just read and how we desperately need you Holy Spirit and as the disciple pray for the full feeling of the Holy Spirit we pray today that there will be fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us we desperately need more of you Holy Spirit and I pray that you do that as we about to look at the beautiful, great news of the gospel together. I pray that you burn the fire for the gospel in our heart, that we cannot contain it, that we can't keep it to ourselves. And you are the only one can, can make this happen. So we surrender to you, Holy Spirit. Use my limited word, use my mouth to communicate your unlimited word to your people. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Okay, today's sermon I titled, um, Unshakable Boldness. Now, have you ever wondered uh, what happened to Apostle Peter? Now, if you do not know, if you do not grow up in church, let me tell you something about Peter. Peter was a coward. Okay? Do you remember that? Because the night before crucifixion, remember Jesus told his disciple, right? Every one of you will betray me. And he specifically said to Peter, Peter, you will deny me how many times? Three times. Again, but Peter said to Jesus with confidence, Lord, even if every one of these disciples left you, not me. I'm different. I will go with you wherever you go. Okay? I'll be with you, man, to both prison and death. See, everyone might fail you, but not I. I will never disown you. So the dude, Peter, this, this man, he had a strong confidence and boldness in his love for Jesus. Okay? But then you know the story. Despite his boasting, what happened to him? He denied Jesus three times. So when Jesus was captured, he ran away. And not only that, but he denied Jesus to a little young slave girl. Cause, so, you know, he did not deny Jesus to, you know, like soldiers or police officers, no. He denied Jesus, knowing Jesus, to a young slave girl. The dude was a coward. Peter was a coward. He failed miserably. But then if you look at the book of Acts, especially in the last couple of weeks, then you'll see a totally different person. Can we agree on that? Because we see a man who is extremely bold for Jesus, like in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, right? So when the people gathered, you know what he said to the crowd? He looked at the crowd and said, you killed Jesus. You murdered Jesus. And this guy has such boldness that was absent from his life before. What happened to Peter? Let me tell you something true about all of us. You and I, we love stories where people overcome their fear and become bold and brave. Don't we? I mean, we just love that watch, to watch that kind of movie, right? We love to see people do the right thing and do not compromise, no matter what the cost. We love it. We love it when we see underdogs do that. And deep inside our heart, we want to be that kind of person. We want to be bold for Jesus. We want to have unshakable confidence in Jesus. Okay, let me just speak for myself. Okay, let me not speak to you. Like, I want to be bold for Jesus, like, I want to stand up for Jesus even when everybody walks away from Jesus. I want that. But can I be honest? I am often not. I am often not pulled for Jesus. Do you know what is one of the most awkward moments for me as a pastor? It's when people ask me the question, what do you do for a living? Especially in the midst of party where I don't know most of the people. Okay, that question will eventually come up, right? If you go to a party and you don't know a lot of people, that is one of the standard questions. What do you do for a living? And some questions, I mean some answer will liven up the party. What do you do for a living? I'm a CIA. Wow, like, like wow, and everybody gets excited. Like what, can, can you tell us some of the mission that you're in? Like how many people have you shot? Have you ever killed anybody, right? People will be excited. But then comes to my turn. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And suddenly, the confessor die. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Or or maybe if the confessor die, instantly they go like, okay, wow. Well, I guess you got to do what you have to do, right? So, well, good for you. Let me get a drink. Uh, Enjoy the party. God bless you, Reverend. Goodbye. Right? And, see, it's awkward. See, it's awkward when I tell people what I do for a living. Okay, Then one time, I'm not proud of this. There one time, many years ago, um, I was traveling, and I I talked to the person sitting next to me on a plane, right? Right? And that person asked me, what did I do for a living? And you know what I said? Okay, I learned this from my dad, so blame my dad, right? I said, "Um, I'm involved in travel agency business. Technically, that's not a lie, because I do help people travel from hell to heaven, right? So that's (laughs) technically not a lie. But that's what I did, okay? Can you relate with me on that? I mean, we want to be bold, but there are many times that we don't want to be party poopers. Like, we don't want to be put in uncomfortable position. And we don't want to be marginalized. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's what is wrong. What is wrong is when our desire to be accepted and approved leads us to put our Christian faith aside. See, what is wrong is when we choose the comfort of this world over faithfulness to Christ and His Word. So then the question will be for us tonight is, how can we have this unshakable boldness to play part in the gospel movement? Okay. Let me give you the context of the story first. So in Acts chapter 4, there's a massive change. Massive change. Because in Acts 1, 2, 3, all is well. The Holy Spirit will pour out. Thousands of people receive Christ. Signs and wonders were be being done. And then in Acts chapter 3, last week we found that lame man get healed, right? So people are excited. But in Acts chapter 4, the music changes. Because beginning at Acts chapter 4, Persecution towards Christian began to happen, okay? But here's the thing that we're going to see again and again. Persecution cannot stop the gospel movement. Cannot. I love it. Look at verse 3 and 4. Acts 4, 3 and 4. It says this. And they arrested them, Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word belief, and the number of the men came about to... 5,000? I mean, this is weird. Okay? Imagine the scene with me. So, Peter and Paul, they were preaching the gospel, and then they arrested, but thousands of people believe. Like, can you imagine if that happened today? So, imagine I was preaching the gospel in what? Like, in a city. Like, you know, open air. Braw, prepan. And everybody was listening to me, and because, and, you know, I disturbed public peace, suddenly police officer came and put me, handcuffed me, and dragged me off, Okay? And while they drag me off, I make the invitation, okay? If you want to receive Jesus and accept Him as your Lord and Savior and get us arrested, come forward now. And suddenly thousands of people come forward and receive Christ. Isn't that weird? That's what's happening here. Because it tell us something about the gospel. See, the power of the gospel cannot be stopped. Persecution cannot stop the gospel movement. So that what happened is the next day, the religious leader got together and they put Peter and John on trial. And again, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter looks at the people, the religious leader, and says this. We heal this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And there's no salvation in other name but the name of Jesus. I love the dude, right? I mean, this, this time we love the dude. This guy is bold for Jesus. But what really catches my attention is verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So when they look at Peter and John, they realize, hold on a second, these men are uneducated common men. What does it mean? They never have formal training in Torah. They don't go to Bible college, Okay. They're just common, uneducated men. But here's something that they do realize about Pope Peter and John. They do have something. So that, they might not graduate from the best university. They might not graduate summa cum laude. But here's what they have. They had been with Jesus. And that makes a difference. See, it tells us something. Okay, We're not going to go deep into this. but this, We're going to go deep next week about this. But it tells us something about the gospel and the way God works. God does not need you to be awesome for him to use you. He used common, uneducated men who spent time with him. That's it. He does not need you to have summa lauda. He does not need that. But then, so, <laughs> the story goes. So, the religious leader warned Peter and John, all right? Well, we can't really do anything with them because they don't do anything bad. They heal a lame, a lame man. Okay, that's a good thing. So, they finally tell Peter and John, fine, you can go and continue to heal the sick. Just do one thing. Never speak of the name of Jesus. So, with another word, they, what they say is, go on and do good for the city. Go on and heal the sick. Just don't share your faith. Keep your faith private. Don't make people around you become a Christian. I mean, don't we see that happening already in the story of Daniel? And that repeats itself. And again, what does Peter say? Peter repeated what Daniel and Sardrach Meshach Abednego say. First 1920. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They flatly refuse to obey the government, the the, the religious leaders. They basically say, okay, whatever. We we cannot stop preaching the gospel. We have seen and heard too much. We rather obey God than listen to you. Here's the question. What happened to Peter the coward? What happened to the man who denied Jesus? He become extremely bold. And that's what this text would answer us, okay? So I want to look at this text because this text will give us a clue how we can be bold for Christ today. So when they are released, they go back to meet their Christian friend. And by this time, the Bible said there are at least 5,000 Christian men. So if you count the women and the children, that's about 15,000. Okay, that's a big church. And that's the first church in the book of Acts. They're probably called RJI, right? Rock Jerusalem International. And here, we will find a secret to their unshakable boldness. Okay, three things that we can see. Declaration, supplication, affirmation. First one, declaration. First 23 to 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elder had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentile rage and the people plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in his city, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is crucial. I know this is a very simple point, but this is extremely crucial. Do you know what the first thing that the disciple does? They pray. So for them, praying is not the last resort. Oh, no. Praying is the first response. Isn't that very different on how we treat prayer today? Like you and I, we are trained to find, to solve problems on our own, to find solution on our own. So whenever we have problem, our first natural response is what? We try to find out the solution. How? We go to Google. Whatever question you have, Google has the answer, right? That's what we do. But in this passage, it tells us that for the early Christian, God is not one of the many options they have. Oh no, God is the only option. That's why they prayed. Immediately after everything that happened, they pray to God. I mean, doesn't that convict you already? Because if we want to be honest, a lot of them, prayer is our last resort. After everything does not work, then we pray. But the disciples, they pray first. But here's what I want you to get: pay attention to the way they pray. This is really cool. The way they pray sounds very different from the way we will pray. Okay. When we pray, we begin by telling God our needs. You know me with that? Like when we pray, we begin by saying, "God." I need you to do this for me. God, I need a job. God, I need you to soften up my friend's heart. God, I need you to do, to do miracles in my parents' life. or Something like that. So whenever we pray, we bring our supplication first. Correct? But the disciples not. The disciples make a declaration first. And this is not something new. This is something that Jesus taught himself. Okay, you guys, most of you guys can recite the Lord's Prayer. Can you recite the Lord's Prayer? Okay, if you can, recite it with me. Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop there. What's that? That is a declaration. That's a declaration of who God is. So only after they declare who God is, then they make their supplication. What's the next line? Give us today our daily bread. So that's the pattern of prayer. Okay, so you declare who God is and then you make your supplication. Why? Why do you do that? This is very interesting. Eugene Peterson, he passed away earlier this year, writes that prayer is less about talking to God, but more about answering God. Okay, that's a paradigm changing for me. Prayer is less about talking to God and more about answering God. Okay, let me explain. Imagine you and me sit over a coffee okay? You want to get to know me. This is your first time coming to Sydney International. You want to tell your life story to your pastor, right? So you take me out for a coffee, then you sit, and then you spend the next five hours telling me about your story, your accomplishment, your struggles, your childhood, everything, right? For five hours straight, I was listening to you, okay? Welcome to Pastor Life, right? That's what happened. So I I listened to all your junk. I listened to all everything that you say for five hours, okay? After that, what do you expect me to do? After you finish with your story, you want me to respond, correct? And when I respond, rather than responding to your story, I begin to tell you my needs. So here's what I need you to do. Serve in the church, come to Logos, come to Aceh, and, you know, all the stuff that I need you to do. What will you feel? You will be offended, Correct? you will move church and find a better pastor. Why? Because I pretty much just ignore everything that you just told me for the last five hours. But that's what we do with when we pray. Because what you and I need to understand is this. God has first initiated conversation with you. Let me put it this way. Prayer is not a conversation that we initiated with God. No, no, no. Prayer is a conversation that God initiated with us. How? Because God already tell us all his story from Genesis to Revelation. He poured out his heart to us through this book. So now when we pray, we've got to respond to what he already revealed to us before we make our supplication. Why do we do this? Does God have amnesia problem? No. See, we tell God who he is, not because he needs to be reminded who he is, but because we need to remind ourselves who he is. Because when we pray, a lot of time we forgot to whom we are praying. We forgot. And I love the fact that this is the words that they use to describe uh, God. Okay? So when they begin their prayer, they say this, they begin addressing God as the sovereign Lord. I love the Greek word for this. Right? The Greek word for sovereign Lord is this, despota. Can you repeat that after me? Despota. Okay, it sounds sexy, right? Despota. Okay, make sure you don't go the other one, right? It's despota, not despacito. Okay, that's totally different one. One sovereign world is one is Bieber Fever. Okay, despota, not despacito. So when they begin to pray despota, the word despota actually means the one who has supreme authority and power. Absolute supreme power and authority. And God's sovereignty is expressed in two ways. First, God is sovereign over creation. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. These invoke the image of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. So that's what happened in the beginning. So when God began the work of creation, God began with an emptiness. There was nothing but God. And here's something that you need to know about the law of physics. For every effect, there must be a cause. You guys learned that in physics, right? There cannot be an effect without a cause. For every effect, there must be a cause. Even when a girl say nothing, there is a cause behind her, nothing. Guys, you've been warned. Okay? There's always a cause. But then also the law of physics tells us that means if there's a cause for everything, there must be one unmoved cause cost that causes everything else. You with me on that? And the Bible said that unmoved cause, that uncaused cause is God. And what's amazing about our God is this, he does not need the right ingredients to create. He created out of nothing. For you and me today, if you wanna what? We wanna bake, right? If I call myself Yoshi the baker and I wanna bake cookies. I need the right ingredients. I cannot just make things happen on my own. But when God wants to create, He does not need the right ingredient. All God needs is to say, and it came to be. Words, it happened. God is sovereign over creation. The good news is God doesn't need to have the right ingredients for Him to accomplish what He desires. He only needs to say it, and it came to be. The second one, God is not only sovereign of a creation, but God is sovereign over history. So when the disciples pray to God, they actually quote Psalm two, so they actually pray the Bible to God. Okay, and this is what they say. Let me quote it from Psalm two, verse one and two: "Why do the nation rage, and the people plot in vain? The king of the earth set himself, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed." So now they're saying, the disciples are saying, the religious leaders and the Roman leaders, they gathered to go, they gathered to go against God's anointed, which is Jesus. That's what happened. They plotted in vain. See, when they think that they can hinder God's purpose, you know what God responds? Verse 4, I love it. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord hold them in derision. So when all the nations gather together to get rid of God and God's people, you know what God does? He laughs. And by the way, when God laughs, it's not funny. When God laughs, it's a mockery. Because God's just thinking, what? These people think that they can hinder my plan and purposes? These people think that they can gather together and stop me, the Almighty God? Are you kidding? So God was laughing. Because they have absolutely no idea that whatever they planned is already predetermined by God. And that's what God said, okay? That's what the disciples said, verse 27, 28. For truly in this, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. So get this right. The cross of Christ is not God's plan B. It is God's plan A. Before anything came to be, the cross was already predetermined. So when the nations gather together to get rid of God and God's people, God laughs. Why? Because he's not surprised by their rebellion. God is not caught of God. Oh my gosh, what happened? Why did they do why did they do that? Why? No. God already pre- see everything that's going to happen, and He already used it as part of His plan. So it does not matter how powerful your enemies are. It does not matter how powerful the enemies, the kingdoms are. They are no match for the despot. Nothing occurred outside God's decree, even in the most horrific sin committed in human history, where the Son of God was killed at the cross. It was predetermined by God. God was the author of the cross. So that means this. If he's in absolute sovereign control of history, that means there's not one thing that happened in history that he does not know. He's in absolute control. The plan and the purpose of God are unstoppable. Nothing can hinder God's purpose. That's what they say before they make this application. Now just think about it. If you really believe that, that God is sovereign over creation and over history, what will that do to you? Let me tell you what's going to happen. You have absolutely no reason to be afraid. Because the person that you pray to has the power to make anything happen. And not only that, he has the control over everything that happened. So you you and I have no reason to be afraid. We remind ourselves that he's despota. And then after understanding that he's in sovereign control, then you can make your bold petition. Then you can make your supplication. But you'll be surprised what they ask for. Supplication. Verse 29 to verse 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, what do they ask for? Do they ask for comfort? Do they ask for ease of persecution? Do they ask God to change their circumstances? I mean, I'm sure many of them have family, right? I'm sure that some of them have wife, have kids, children. But do they ask God to protect their family? I mean, do they even ask God to protect their life? No. They do not. Okay, let me be honest. When I, when I, pray this, when I read this prayer and I compare it with my own prayer life, I've got to be honest. It sounds very different. Because when I pray to God, when I, make, when I make my petition, a lot of them I ask God to change my circumstances in order to make my life better. Is that true about you and me? Okay, But that's, that's not his. Let me give you one example. A couple of weeks ago, I was informed um, by Janssen in our media department that someone commented on my Indonesian sermon on YouTube from two years ago and we do not know what to do with it. Okay? The, comment, the comment was, Pendeta Botol. Okay? Botol pastor. Okay? None of us knew what that meant. Well, well okay, if you know me, I'm the positive kind of guy. I'm the half full cup guy. Okay? So when I thought uh, bottle, the first thing that came to my mind was, Teh Botol. That's good. That's refreshing, right? So when I, said, when I read Pendeta bottle, I'm like, oh, that means a refreshing pastor. That's a good thing. But then one of my friends, dear friend, destroyed it and told me that botol meant bodoh dan tolol. Stupid and dumb. Okay, Indonesian are uh, expert at making these kind of random words. So this, this person called my 20 plus hours of gospel labor in Indonesian botol. On the outside, I smile. Ah, that's okay. Part of my life, you know, pastor's life, persecution, it happened. But on the inside, I pray that God will strike that person with lightning. You know know what I'm talking about? I want my circumstances to be better. We want that. But when the disciples experienced persecution, they did not ask for the circumstances to be better. You know what they asked for? Boldness. So they asked God to enable them to continue to preach the gospel. They're not asking for escape from persecution, but enablement to stand under persecution with another word, they put mission off for their personal comfort. They know, they know that their life is so much more than about them. For them, the advancement of the Gospels is more important than life. Get this right. See, the center of their prayer is not their personal advancements, but the glory of Christ. So that's why when they pray, I love the way they pray. They They go this when they pray. God, can you look at their threats? So basically, they Bring the threats that the religious leaders give to them and give it to God. God, look at the threats. These threats are not against us. It's against the reputation of your son. It's against the glory of your son. We just want to let you know so you can take care of it. As for us, give us boldness to preach the gospel. Here's my question. Have we ever prayed like that? Because this is the kind of prayer That God loves to answer. Now I am not saying, I am not saying it is wrong for us to pray for God to change our circumstances. I'm not saying that. But the disciples understand that there's something more fundamental that they need. They need boldness that goes beyond their circumstances. What they ask for is unshakableness when everything is shaken. Do you know what is our problem in life? Okay, if we want to sum up all our problems in life, come up to this. Our problem in life is we try our best to keep our world from shaking. I mean, we do not like to be shaken. All of us, we desire comfort and stability. I mean, we don't mind other people's lives are being shaken, as long as it is not our life. But if there's anything that year 2020 teaches us is this, that everything that we think is unshakable will be shaken. COVID-19. Is there any country, government, kingdom that is not shaken by COVID-19? Is there any one of us in here who is not directly or indirectly affected by COVID-19? None. 2020 teaches us that everything that we think is unshakable will be shaken. But let me, let me bring it closer, right? The law of physics tells us this. Everything in this world is coming apart. That's the law of physics. So let me put it this way. I used this illustration before, but I'm going to make it more personal. Let's say I cook a very delicious fried chicken. I don't cook, by the way. Illustration. Let's say I cook a very delicious fried chicken. It smells good. It tastes awesome. It's better than KFC. Okay. Then I leave it in the kitchen shelf for one month. What happened? Well, of course, that delicious fried chicken turns yuck, correct? It smells, it's awful, it's rotten. It's a rotten chicken. You with me on that? Okay, here's something that you and I must consider. When you look at that rotten chicken, you are looking at your own life. Someone, like, what? I'm a rotten chicken? Yes. Why? Because whether you like it or not, your body is slowly falling apart. It doesn't matter how often you go to gym. It doesn't matter how often you, how well you eat. It will come a time that your body will start to fall apart. Those with white hairs can tell you. It does not matter. Law of physics tells us everything in this world will come, will fall apart. We want to stay forever young. But it doesn't matter how hard we try. Everything is shaking now why am i making this point because let me ask you a question why are we not bold in proclaiming the gospel let me tell you why because you don't want your world to be shaken could be you're afraid what other people might think of you you want their approval or could be that you feel uncomfortable doing so you love comfort I mean, there are many reasons. I can go on and on and on. But ultimately, here's the reason. We are not bold in sharing the gospel because we are afraid of the consequences that might come with sharing the gospel. We don't want our life to be uncomfortable. We choose to keep the gospel to ourselves to keep our world from shaking. Am I right? Is it just me? Am I right? But here's the irony. Here's the irony of all irony. The more we try to keep our world from shaking, the more shakable we are. See, we are so shakable precisely because we keep trying to stop our world from shaking. The more you try to keep your world from shaking, the more you realize there's nothing you can do, the more shakable you become. That's the bad news for us. Nothing in this world, nothing in this world is not shaking. But the good news of the gospel is this. There is one thing that is not shakable. There is one thing that is unshakable, and it is called the kingdom of God. And the sovereign Lord is sitting on his throne. He laughs at the enemy's plan and purposes because the enemy thinks that they can hinder God's purpose, but God said, hold on a second. No, my kingdom is unshakable. My purpose is unstoppable. He will win. And that is the goodness for you and me. So now, that's what the disciples pray for. The disciples pray, God, give me the unshakable boldness to proclaim the unshakable gospel. And when they pray that, God answers. Affirmation. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the words of God with boldness. I mean, I just love the way God answered their prayer. This is God's affirmation to their supplication. One preacher, who shall remain unnamed, once told me, "Yos, do you know the interesting difference between what happened when God manifested His presence in the New Testament and today? I thought seriously, hmm. Thought hard, and he gave me the answer. In the New Testament, when God came down, the building was shaking. But today, the people were shaking. Some of you will get it when you're home. That's a joke, by the way. But don't miss the point. God answers prayer. So this sovereign Lord, who is in, creation, who is in control of a creation in history. So nothing happened outside of His will. His purpose cannot be thwarted. But yet this sovereign Lord has decided to accomplish His purpose through your prayer and my prayer. So this sovereign Lord has decided that He will give us what we need through prayer. And a lot of times, James said, even though God is sovereign, a lot of times we do not have because we do not ask. But when we ask, God answered. And this is what happened. So when the apostle prayed, God answer. God comes comes down to the place where they gather. The place is shaken, and everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit to continue to proclaim the gospel with boldness. That means this. The filling of the Spirit enables the apostle and the disciples to be bold witnesses of Christ. Okay, this is not second baptism. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the continuous filling of the Spirit, and I believe our church desperately needs that. We continue to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be in awe of the gospel. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, here's what happens. We become bold. How? How does the Holy Spirit burn the gospel within us? Let me explain. So every time um, God manifested His presence, um, there's always dramatic effect. Do you notice that in the Bible? Every time God appears, always, you know, dramatic and one of the things that often occur when God show up in the Old Testament was an earthquake. Why? The reason is simple: this. because when God came down on earth, when His presence came down on earth, God is far greater than the earth. Therefore, the earth shook. Picture like this: imagine Tim, who is at least twenty kilograms heavier than me, comes down upon me. He graces me with his full body slam. What will happen to me? I will be shaken. Correct? Why? Because he's far heavier than me. So that's what we see every time God appears, especially when God manifests his presence into someone, that particular person is always falling apart. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he fall apart. Woo, me. He crumbled under the holiness of God. And yet in this history, in this story, When God came down, you know what happened? The place is shaking, but the people are not. Do you know why? Let me tell you why. Because prior to this time, there's two earthquakes that happened. Two greatest earthquakes in human history. The first earthquake happened in Matthew 27. When Jesus died, the Bible wrote, the earth shook. Why? Because the justice of God, the weight of the justice of God fall upon Jesus. Jesus endured the wrath of God. He died for it. He became sins for us. And because of that, what happened? The earth shook with the weight of the justice of God. And Jesus died. He took my sin and your sin and he died and the earth shook. But in Matthew chapter 28, another earthquake happened. And this time the earth shook. And the stone that covered Jesus' tomb was rolled away. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead. What happened? Because the glory of God fell again once more time. The earth shook. But this time it was glory that bring the dead comes to life. God, Jesus, basically, God say What Jesus has done has satisfied his right against sin. This is God's vindication about what Jesus has done. The forgiveness of sins given to us. And now, you and I, we are called to inherit the kingdom of God. The unshakable kingdom of God. So now, Jesus' righteousness become my righteousness. Jesus' victory is my victory. And therefore, the glory of God is something that no longer shakes us. The glory of God is something that empowers us. That's the gospel, my friend. See, if you understand this, this is what the Holy Spirit does. That's the gospel. So when the Holy Spirit falls upon you, this is what happens. It makes the work and the person of Jesus more beautiful than before. And when that happens, you become bold. You become confident. Jesus was shaken to pieces so that when the Holy Spirit comes down into our life, it makes us more unshakable. Because the Holy Spirit helped us to see that the only thing that is unshakable is already ours. And everything else that is shakable become less important to us. Because why? Because we already have what is unshakable, eternal life, kingdom of God. If you understand what you have in Christ, here's my question. Why would you be afraid of losing this temporary life right now when you are guaranteed eternal life? You become extremely bold. And that is the power of the gospel. The disciples understand this. And that's why they pray, God, give us boldness. And their boldness leads to our salvation. And our boldness will lead to the salvation of everyone around us. And that is the gospel movement. Now, I thought of ending my sermon uh, by giving you a story of Joyce Lynn. If you do not know, um, she made a headline a couple of months ago uh, because she lost her life um, due um, to a plane crash while she was on a missionary pilot trying to advance the gospel. I mean, that would be one awesome inspiration, right? Tell you guys a story of this big mission and how she gave her life for it. But this is what I thought. I realized that if I tell you that story, the chance of us becoming the next Joy Slim is very slim. Okay, I need to be more realistic. Okay? I know you guys. I know myself. Most of us are beginners when it comes to unshakable boldness. Can we agree on that? Most of us are beginners. So I'm going to give you something different. Instead of giving you one dramatic story, I'm going to give you something more applicable. That is boldness for beginners, okay? Okay, you heard this boldness for, you know, something for dummies. I was going to call boldness for dummies, but now nah, okay. Boldness for beginners, sounds better. Okay, and I, I ripped some of this off from the Summit Church. Okay, I'm going to give you five steps. What you can do, boldness for beginners. First, something that you can apply in your daily life. Say something when saying nothing will be easier. So when your coworker asks you tomorrow, what do you do on your weekend? Well, tomorrow not, you're not really going to work. On Tuesday, what do you do over the long weekend? Don't be afraid to tell them that you go to church. I mean, don't be afraid. That, well, might as well invite them to church. So when people ask you what you love most, don't just talk about your, the latest Korean drama that you watch, but tell them that you love Jesus. And tell them why you love Jesus. So if people ask you what you do for a living... Don't be afraid to tell them that you're a pastor. In fact, when they know you're a pastor, they already know what to expect. They know what's coming. A mini sermon. Special teller for them, right? They know what's coming. And that makes it easier for me to share the gospel. Okay, and, and there's one, one more area that I want to encourage you to think about, okay? Say something when I think it will be easier. That is in your social media. Uh. I know you guys love many different things because I look at your social media, but if I can be honest, there's not many of you that project your love for Christ in your social media. Now, I'm not saying your, all your Instagram posts need to be like mine, all gospel content. I'm not saying that. But I think, you know, it's possible for you to begin to communicate what you love through your social media. If you love the church, if you love Jesus, if you love the gospel, then why not communicate that to your social media? Why, why, why a shame? There should be no separation between the Sunday you and the social media you. Okay, so say something when saying nothing will be easier. The first one. Second one take advantage of opportunity when they present themselves. So when your coworker or when your friend share their problem with you, don't just say, you know, that's very bad. I hope things will get better for you. Don't say that. And don't say this I will pray for you. Because you know what happened? Most likely you will forgot to pray for that person. Here's what you should do. When they share their problem, pray for them on the spot. I mean, they, they bring the food to you on platter, right? They serve it to you. I mean, don't waste that opportunity. So when they bring you their struggle, then might as well. Let me pray for you. Oh, I believe my God can do miraculous things. I believe my God can answer your problem right here, right now. And introduce the gospel to them. Don't waste it. And I share with them how, in your struggle, the gospel continue to sustain you and help you to be unshakable. Number three, create opportunity. So if the second one is, don't waste the opportunity that come to you, the third one is, is, create opportunity. See, don't just wait for opportunity to come. Create it. How do you do that? Well, you can do this by inviting your friends to dinners and lunch. And actually talk to them, get to know their life, share your life, and, or maybe you, what you can do, what, you know, like, for example, share the sermon, YouTube sermon, and, say, and after they watch it, say, uh, what do you think about the sermon? Or maybe watch them together. Or one that I see in the book um, that Stacey Manson a couple of weeks ago saturated, I think it's a brilliant idea. Why don't you have barbecue? Invite your neighbors. Everybody loves free barbecue. Invite your neighbors. So invite your non-Christian friend. Invite your neighbors, free barbecue. Okay? And when you do that, also invite your Christian friend. So now you create a space for the Christian and non-Christian to have interaction with one another. So you be smart about it. Be very int- intentional about creating opportunity for you to share the gospel. Or number four, spend time with Jesus. Here's what I know. You cannot be bold for Jesus if you don't spend time with Jesus. It is only when you spend time in prayer, meditating the Bible, that you will be able to speak of Jesus with boldness and confidence. You notice, The more you watch that TV show, whatever TV show that you love, the more you watch that TV show, the more confident you have in talking about that TV show. Okay, you read all about it, you watch about it, you learn about it, and now you have confidence to tell your friend about how amazing that TV show is, correct? Let's talk about politics, okay? Why some of you are so confident in your political view? Let me tell you why. Because you read a lot. You watch a lot. You listen a lot. And that makes you somehow feel like you become a political expert, even though you know nothing about politics. Right? And the same with Jesus. The more time you spend with Jesus, the bolder you are talking about Jesus. And the last one, or maybe for some of us, is this. Ask God for boldness. For some of us, maybe our first step is simply to pray and ask God, God, I want to be bold. I am not bold. Let me tell you, God loves to answer this kind of prayer. So when you pray this prayer, don't be surprised if God answers your prayer tomorrow by giving you opportunity to share the gospel. And that's what I want to do as we end the sermon. Let's pray together for boldness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know, we know that we have a lot of reason why a lot of time we neglected. We neglected your mission and your purpose. Forgive us, God. And tonight, if we are reminded of a sovereign God that we serve, a sovereign God who's control of our history, and a sovereign God who has a purpose to be accomplished in this world, and you graciously invite us to play part in the gospel movement, I pray that today, First of all, we, we admit and we confess our cowardice. And yet at the same time, we humbly ask you to give us boldness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you burn that fire inside of us. I pray that you burn that fire for the gospel in our guts. So it's my prayer for all of us. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentile rage and the people plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.